Hello, deserving listeners. I often get emails from uh, agents who are asking for me to interview one of their people, one of their clients, about a book they've written or a TV show that they're plugging or something. And I usually just delete them because I get them all the time. But one came across my email uh, address. <laughs> it's a funny way of putting it. But I got an email from an agent. And the uh, it was about an author who had written a book that I just was intrigued by. And I wanted to hear more about it. So we are talking on Skype together right now. Um, but before I introduce you, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. Uh, Kristen, who are you? Hi, thank you again, Kirk, for having me on. Um, my name is Kristen Morris. I am a former worker at Child Protective Services, also known as Department of Children and Families in New Jersey. And I wrote a book called Jamar's Promise. Do you, yeah. do you want me to go on yeah. about it? Okay. Yeah, just tell me about um, this book because when I got the email, I, I said, oh, this, this story should be told. It definitely should. Like I said, um, I never sought out to be a author at all. I wanted to be from day one a just to make a difference in children's life, whether that be a teacher or ended up being a child protective service worker. And I that's what my my career was set to be. I was going to retire there. In this case came across my desk. Originally, the child was beaten severely by mom's boyfriend. The child was at that point, his name was Jamar. Um, the child was eight years old at the time. He, when I got the case, you get pictures in the, the case file. So I wasn't the original worker on the case that originally saw him, but the pictures spoke volumes. Um, there were slash marks across his entire body from bruises, belt marks, and whatnot. The stepfather, or the mom's paramour, was incarcerated for uh, this abuse. He was incarcerated for 45 days. Let me, let me, let me jump in, because yep. some people don't understand the CPS process. So uh, just uh -huh. to kind of break that down. So you received a uh, the case, you probably didn't receive the initial call, correct? Correct. So, exactly. so, so someone called CPS and said, uh, I have a case here of a, of a boy who seems to, you know, he has bruises. And um, so who was that person who, who made that initial call? Um, it actually was the police. How did the police find out about this? The police got involved um, because the bruises were found by the grandparents. Okay. So grandparents um, called the police. So I'm guessing the mother's parents? Yes. So the mother's, yep. so the mother's parents come across Jamar, is his name Jamar? Yes. Yep. And they see all these severe injuries. Yes. And maybe they ask him what happened. And he says, you know, my stepfather did this. Right. Yep. And then the grandparents, you know, it's not all the time that grandparents will call CPS. Often people keep it in the family, you know. Uh, yes. So was this like a repeat offense? Was Were the grandparents, did they have ongoing concerns about the stepfather? I think so. I think they did prior to, um, like you said, it's not often that a family will call. Um, it's actually often that they will try to keep it in the family, especially a cultural 
Um, they were Hispanic or they are Hispanic. And um, there's a definite cultural difference where they want to keep it in their own culture and kind of keep it, you know, to their own and try to fix their problem themselves. So this was a big thing for them to reach out to any kind of public. I don't think they thought maybe DIFUS or DCPMP, but um, when they called the cops, it was a big thing to get the Oh, right. So they called the police. Correct. And then the the police perhaps uh, went to the home to investigate the child, and then they called CPS. They called. And then uh, then someone took the file and then gave it to you. And then that's when you're seeing the the pictures. And so as a CPS worker, what's going through your mind at, at that point? Um, unfortunately you get, I was that, I was there about six years and you kind of, you don't get immune. You never, ever get immune. If you get immune, you need to leave. Um, but you're, you kind of like, you have to build up some kind of, um, resistance and, um, some kind of, uh, for your own self and for your family self to, um, make sure that you can get through the day. So, but you see this kind of case and it's so severe that, you never, ever have a parent – well, not ever, but you rarely have a parent that gets um, prosecuted for some kind of abuse on a child. It's very – you have to have – they have to have – like it has to rise to a higher level. So this – when it, I saw that he was arrested, I knew that it was pretty – the abuse was bad. So you knew the police had already decided to book him yes. for, for assault uh, yep. of a child or something. Um Interesting. And and so uh, you're saying that if you become completely immune, you should quit. Uh, why is that? I, I mean, I guess that's just from uh, because you have to do this, this work with a passion. You have to. And there's like the fine line between a passion and getting overworked. Um, and they will definitely do that to you. Um, but you have to have a passion for this. You have to. And if you don't or if you're jaded, you have to step or at least step out of the um, the front lines because these are kids' lives that we're talking about. Um, you know, they're not case files. They're not numbers to the system. They're actual kids' lives and families' lives that we're dealing with. So when you first started out as a CPS worker, was it much harder for you? Did it become easier to see photos like this over time? It never became easier. I guess it you became... Um, a little bit more, you, you kind of get got adjusted to it, I guess. That's how you say you, it never gets easier. To this day, talking about it is not easy at all. Um, it's very, very difficult. And um, like I said, if it's ever easy, then you're in the wrong career and you need to leave. But um, it's, yeah, it never becomes easy. So Just, when you saw these photos, it was shocking to you. It was difficult to see. Yes, it was. I can. I remember opening the envelope, and like I said, I was there for six years at that point, and um, saw many cases. Um, but I still remember to this day opening up that envelope and seeing the the um, the belt marks all over his body. So it was. Yeah, it was very overwhelming. Could you see an outline of a belt? Did it look clear? That it was yep. like a belt. Wow. Yeah. So, yes. so like, like the like a like a belts have been tattooed on his body or something. Absolutely. Yep. Just like that, actually. And um, it was throughout his whole body, from his face to his, throughout his torso, through his legs, um, down to his feet. So it was pretty extensive. So remind me, Jamar is is how old at at this point? 
At this point, he's eight when I come into his life. Okay. So then what happens? So I um, come into his life. At this point, um, the mom's paramour is um, in jail, incarcerated. Mom at, um, has a baby by him. So now she's a single mom, technically, um, with Jamar, who's eight, and then a newborn baby. Um, mom agreed to let grandparents um, uh, let Jamar stay with the grandparents until she figures out what's going to happen with um, the stepfather and the baby and try to go through what we do is we implement we implement like therapy and stuff like that. So they had to go through all of that to try to work out you know their issues. So they were just we were waiting to see um, if they were going to be compliant or not. Yeah, as a as a family therapist, uh, at a certain point in my career, mid career, I did a lot of that work. CPS would contract with me to go into the home and see what was going on and uh, attempt to improve parenting skills, to talk with the kids about how to behave in such a way that doesn't get them in trouble. Um, you know, various different things that that I would do. Can I just ask you a question? I'm sorry about that. Uh, Piggybacking on your uh, experience, um, and this relates to the case. Do you ever, um, or do you have any tools to follow up with once you do therapy with a family? Do you have any tools to follow up? Because he successfully completed, the family successfully completed everything that we put in place, we implemented for them. Um, Do you have any tools that you use to see if, um, when they do successfully or don't successfully complete programs um, that actually when you, they go back into the homes or the children go back in the homes, the parents go back, whatever, um, if they're really utilized, if their tools that they've learned are utilized? or Yeah, that's a good question. Um, typically, there's a lot of different kinds of therapies, but typically it's extremely difficult to predict the future when it comes yeah. to human behavior. Yeah. And as therapists, all we can do is report to you guys, CPS, what their what you know what the facts are, and if if the stepfather is compliant with sessions and showing up and talking about you know th- that he realizes he can't do that anymore and that he has tools now on, in terms of taking a walk around the block or taking a deep breath or or passing off parenting responsibilities to the mother or calling a friend or listening to music or taking a drink of water. You know, like there's, there's various different things. Maybe, maybe the father has been traumatized in all likelihood he has. And, you know, has, has he been, um, uh, has had the treating therapist strongly recommended he seek treatment for that? You know, there's, there's a lot of different things that come into play, but being in that position many times, I would just I would just report the facts to the CPS worker and and I would say look it's up to you. I I I'm not trained on how to predict the future that's more CPS's uh, uh and the and the laws concern you know my job is to provide therapy for people who want therapy um so yeah I I'm guessing there are measures in terms of uh, you know, psychological assessments regarding trying to triangulate to answering that question as to whether or not someone is compliant with the treatment protocol or whether or not they're actually able to 
reduce their anger responses, but typically they're not done because those are kind of expensive and it's sort of an expertise that, that most family therapists don't possess. Yes. That's what I've experienced. So, okay. So where were we in the story here? You, Oh, what I wanted to ask was the mother, was she, how, how was she feeling about all this? Was she on the, on her paramours side or child side or what, what was her position? She was, she, um, just was kind of in disbelief or hiding, you know, hiding for him. Um, you see that a lot that they will cover for the paramours. Um, uh, in this case, it came to be that, um, there was some domestic, well, there was domestic violence. There was no, um, he, Jamal reported domestic violence, but there was no specific reports, but I believe that he, he, um, was abusing mom too. Um, do you, but, do you think she was afraid to come forward with her own yes. complaints? Yes. Yep. So I, was this guy like off the charts, violent and scary? Cause you know, there's, there's. There's cases you get where someone, they have a couple of drinks, they lose control, and it's not their typical behavior. I mean, it's not good, obviously, but what kind of person are we talking about here? Well, it's funny because um, I, I'm pretty good. I pretty um, I can analyze people pretty well just working in the field, and he had me fooled originally. Um, when I went out and when he came home, he was released after 45 days of um beating this child and he came home mom allowed him back in the home so now it's mom and um paramore and um the two-month-old baby at the time and um jamar's at the grandmother's house so when i first met him he he was a product of the system so um he grew up in foster care and um out of home situation so um but he was good at saying that he was trying to help this child. This child um, had behavioral issues, which, again, I was just new to the case. I didn't, I wasn't aware of any behavioral issues at the time, but um, he just wanted to get that under control. He really loved this child, um, and he wanted to just be a parent for this child. That His biological father, in the meantime, was incarcerated for molesting a 13-year-old and had been incarcerated at Jamar's pretty much his whole life. Um, I don't remember the exact um, time frame, but he was a baby at the time that his biological father was incarcerated. So he didn't have a, um, a father figure. So he was, quote unquote, stepping into the role of that. So you want to, you want to believe that. You want to tend to believe that. You want to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and as a family therapist who was called in to these situations, th- most of the time we could see improvement, uh, and most of the time we we would see uh, p- partially because I think I usually requested the easier cases because I the more difficult ones were depressing to me a lot yes. of times, yes. A- and was kind of a waste of my time, frankly. Um, yes. But but I worked with cases where there was a potential for, for change. And, and so, yeah, being optimistic is not, uh, you know, uh, unjustified, especially when they're engaging. Cause, cause often, uh, so it sounds like he engaged with the family therapist that you sent into the home. He did. He did yeah. really. Yes. He, well, there was several, um, therapies that we had family therapy. We had, um, parenting classes. I, I actually put in, uh, two sets of parenting classes in home, out of home, um, just to have eyes kind of all over. 
Yeah. Um, just because of the situation. Um, but he was engaging to very, very well with all of them and was just charming and um, like uh, probably a real psychopath. He has never been uh, um, diagnosed, but I, looking back, I, I see that. So. Right. right. So when we have a, a parent who is compliant, even kind of, we usually think that there's potential for optimism. Uh, and but if he's fully compliant, then we're thinking, wow, this is you know this is great because I would say in my experience, half the time, the stepdad would make excuses, he would skip town, he would yeah. he he would commit some other crime and end up incarcerated for that, and yep. and so to have a guy say. I want to be a father. I'm, you know, maybe he was even saying he was sorry for doing it. Was was yep. he saying that? All of that. Yep. Wow. So yes, you haven't paid. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's when you start really saying, wow, you know, this is this is going to change. You know, uh, a success case that we might even be able to, in the future, hold up at a annual staff meeting as like CPS uh, in action to say, you know, to save a, a family's, uh, livelihood, you know, well-being. Absolutely. Wow. Yep. So yep. then what happened? So, um, after, you know, my first meeting of him, um, I was optimistic, very optimistic, actually so optimistic that I documented about, you know, my conversation with him and how he wanted to, um, ch- be a father figure and he just wants to change this kid's life. And, um, you know, so on and so forth. Although I did document that we, you, you need to do it in different ways. And, but I kind of just tried to engage him and praise him. Um, like we were, we were trained to do, um, that next meeting I go, and this is actually not in the book. This is a, um, a thing that I remembered later, um, after writing it and stuff. But, um, the next meeting I went out to him and, um, you, when you're a CPS worker, I try to go out, announce and unannounced, just to kind of get a real environment of um, what's going on. And um, often I just do an unannounced visit, um, especially in this kind of situation. Although Jamar wasn't home, his two-month-old brother was home, and um, the paramour was watching the two-month-old, his own son, while mom was working full-time. So I go to visit, it was probably around 10 um, a.m., and everything's dark and turned um, down low, um, all the shades are down, and it was just, not something wasn't quite right, and I knock on the door, and again, I'm in the middle of um, Camden City, which is a, a very, um, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous city, um, with my state car, <laughs> And your supervisor doesn't often know exactly where you're at, at, at you know, every point in time in your your day because you just go out and kind of do what you need to do. So um, I knock on the door and he opens it. He's probably about 250, big stature, um, big guy. I'm pretty, pretty scary looking. Um, and he's like, yes, can I help you? And I, you know, reintroduced myself. I thought he didn't recognize me. He's like, well, now's not a good time. So I kind of, I had to see the baby. So I just was, you know, I kind of said if I can come in and see the baby, it wouldn't take long. Um, he, as I walk in, he did let me in. As I walk in, there's kind of rustling upstairs and um, he runs upstairs and um, whatever settles down, whatever's going on at that point. And um, 
I, the baby's downstairs in a, in a bassinet. I make sure that he's okay. And I get that kind of like unsafe feeling. And I'm like, Oh God. Um, and I was like, I'll be back when mom's back home. And he's like, yeah, now's not a good time. So that was like the first dealing with him that I was like, something's not right. So normally you would have gone through the entire house. Exactly. Yep. But, but Every, you yes. were afraid for your life at this point? Yeah. yeah I kind of was, I mean, like now look, I mean, I kind of look back and like, that was very, very dangerous. At then I was just kind of like, Oh yeah, I need to leave. I need to, something's just not right. So, but, um, at that, when I look back, I'm like, wow, he had, he could have, it could have been more dangerous than I really, even the scope of my mind was going. So, so then what? That, so that's what, um, so that's when I was like, hmm, something's not right with him. And um, then it just kind of, he, I had the case for a year, a year and um, he, Jamar was doing well. He had some, he did at this point have some, start having some behavioral issues. Um, they were still at the grandmother's house. He still lived at the grandmother and they were finished at this point. They were finished um, all of the therapy that we implemented, everything, everything that I could possibly think of to implement. Um, I did. And they were saying, you know, I want, we want our child back. Um, we want him back in the home. Mom is saying, you know, we completed everything. Um, I go out and, Again, I, this might be a little bit, it's a little, I might start to get a little emotional because this is still, it's hard. But um, I go out and see him and as now he's nine and he is, um, when you go out, you often, they don't often talk to you. Children le- learn um, that they don't talk to the DIFUS workers. They don't talk to CPS workers. They, you know, just stay quiet. At the, and he was very open when I was going out with him. Um, every time I would see him, he would run and hug me. We built up a, a big, a good rapport. Um, when I saw him this day, he just wasn't himself. And he um, took my hand and we were all in the living family room. And it was his, my, a coworker because they were Spanish speaking. Um, so I don't speak Spanish. And so I would often have to bring a coworker with me. Um, that spoke Spanish. So my coworker was speaking to the grandparents that were Spanish speaking and he drug me in the kitchen. Well, then it pulled me by the hand um, in the kitchen and was like, Miss Kristen, please, please don't send me home, please. Um, and I could see the tears in his eyes and he's holding my hand with his hand shaken. And he said, please. And they never, when they reach out to you, you know, something is wrong. Because they don't, they all, they are so trained to not say anything. So, um, and he goes on about how he, um, his name was Vince. Vince um, hits me and he puts my pillow in the face and he um, punches me and then describes some other, um, some mental tactics that he used. Like um, he would have everybody else eating around the table and he would have to watch them so um, it was it was and it was clear that this child was scared to death, literally like just scared to death. Yeah, those kinds of stories are very believable when a child says them because they're so specific. Yes. You know, kids, you know, sometimes they lie, right? Yes. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, often. <laughs> and uh, they'll usually not 
if I heard those stories, I'd be like, I'm 100% convinced this is actually happening because it's so specific and they're so varied, right? So, wow, that must have been... So, this is the first time that you've heard that abuse had been resuming? Is that what I'm understanding? Well, um, he hadn't really had any contact with him um, in the pa- over the past, it was about, it wasn't a, a, a year yet. It was probably about nine to 10 months and he had, he was incarcerated. Um, and then we had him so involved in, um, activities that when he was, um, having any kind of interaction with them, it was supervised. So, so the son was saying, uh, he was recounting things that happened before the police were involved. Well, he, he was, but at this point, um, now this is, we got involved in January and, um, now this is about September. It was, yeah, it was in September. So this was when they already completed, um, all of their, uh, therapies that we asked and the grandmother was allowing, unbeknownst to us, was allowing him to have, um, contact when school started. So it was about two weeks into September, I believe, that he was having some contact unsupervised with um, the paramour. And that's the stories he was talking about. Exactly. exactly. I see. I see. And again, common in these families that they will go around CPS. And uh, there's various reasons that I've encountered. One is, is just a too much optimism one yeah. one and and two just uh, sometimes the grandparents might be terrified of this guy and sometimes these guys Vince was a stepdad's name yes sometimes guys like Vince can be extremely convincing and very persistent yes. to the point where they'll just break you down against your better judgment so uh, so anyway okay so he pulls you aside and says, don't send me home. You know, keep me here with my grandparents because Vince has been doing all of these horrible things. What's going through your mind at that point? I, you know, you, again, you kind of learn um, the kids when they are lying. I mean, you don't know 100%. You're never going to know 100%. But his physiological signs were telling me um, that he was in danger along with his words so you kind of learn to read that, and I literally, I instantly knew that he was telling the truth. Um, he was his. There was fear in his eyes that I can I can remember to this day, and it is. It, I mean, it, it was actual terror in his eyes. So, um, and you you can't you can't make that up. Right. And he, when he's holding my hand, and it's the whole time he's holding my hand, he's sweating and he's shaking. Um, it was that kind of the physiological signs that I knew that something, something's going on. And at the same time, my coworker who was not familiar with the case, um, but came out again to translate and that sort of stuff. Um, she heard him. Um, and when we left the house, um, we both, uh, without even talking, we both looked at each other and we're like, we need to remove this. We need to take action. We need to, I mean, he wasn't at the home, uh, he was at the grandmother's house, but he was going back and forth because we didn't have legal custody of him. So he was going back and forth. There was nothing in place to say that he couldn't go home. So we needed to, to we looked at each other and, and knew he needed to be re- removed. Right. So, so then what? So 
Um, we talk to our supervisor. We were both on the same page. Um, we go to the su- our supervisor. Our supervisor is in agreement. We tell, tell her, you know, she's familiar with the case, obviously. Um, she knew the history and the background of the abuse originally. So she said, we're removing. Um, so now this is about 4.35 o'clock. Um, and not many people, <laughs> unfortunately, but... Um, it takes a, it's a process. So they often leave it for the next day or just kind of shove it under the rug. So, because you're going to be, you know, you're going to be there late and stuff like that. Um, and, but we, you know, we weren't that type and my supervisor was awesome because she wasn't that type. Um, we have, once you do get an approval from your supervisor, you have to go to, um, what's called their uh, casework supervisors. So it's the supervisor, supervisor, um, so my supervisor goes to seek their approval, and um, unfortunately, in our office, which I haven't talked about much, um, but it is a primarily Hispanic-speaking office, and um, I'm I'm very one of the very few uh, white workers, and um, my supervisor was one of the very few African American workers or supervisors. Um, and unfortunately it's a cultural issue in our office that you don't remove Hispanic children from their home. They're, they kind of want to just like, we kind of said, we kind of talked about that. They want to do it on their own and they want to take care of their own. And if you do remove them they're you're kind of going against their own kind, their own, you know, their own people. So, um, so my supervisor supervisor um, was Hispanic, and she once she heard the last name, she pretty much said she because his last name is Cruz. Um, she said that she couldn't make the decision that she had to talk to our our office manager at the time. And um, again, she reached out. We they kind of all my supervisor and her supervisor and the office manager. Um, they were talking about it. They realize the um the history the abuse and all of that but unfortunately once they got to his name they did not want to remove him so um we were doing you know all the work that was necessary for the removal and um came back and told us that we can't remove this child at this point if i were in your shoes i would be freaking out and angry because (laughs) the this is Presumably why CPS exists, right? Absolutely. And this kid is one of those cases when it's so obvious that CPS should be involved. Because, you know, you get, I've been in uh, a side-by-side with CPS so many times to know that there's a lot of squishy cases where you're just like, you're not really quite sure, like, what do we do here? What do we do, you know? is But this is so obvious, the the severe documented abuse that had happened already, the account from the child saying, you know, these are, these are, these have been happening recently. Um, and I'm terrified and please help me. And the grandparents are being irresponsible with their charge to comply with supervision uh, you know, protocols with, with the father. The father is being completely compliant and nice, and then you hear about these such different stories. So at this point, you got to be thinking, I can't trust anything this guy says because yeah. look at him. I mean, it's it's worse than I thought originally because this not only is this guy 
prone to this kind of abuse, but he's also extremely good at tricking everybody. There's some kind of weird um, thing in this guy's head, you know, like who knows what this guy is capable of. And, and so, and then you go up your chain of command to presumably someone who has the same feelings that you do about human life and protecting mm-hmm. children, and they decide to do something different and to just drop the ball, you know, um, that would, that would be extremely disheartening to me. It's, it, it is, it was, I remember the feeling that night and it was the mo the worst feeling. And there was some part of me that actually just wanted to go out and just grab on myself. And again, that's, you know, it's silly to say, but, um, some part of me, the motherly instinct, I guess, or, um, the human instinct, just kind of wanted to protect him. And, and again, I, I was his protector, even though um, mom, mom was supposed to be, he didn't have that safe haven that we're supposed to have. So he looked at me sort of as that um, safe haven. So when he asked for protection, and then I couldn't, you know, give him that protection, it was horrifying to me. It was so horrifying. And to know that it's nothing but unfortunate circumstances of the system is the reason why it was just, it it was, it was like I came into this um, wanting to save the world, I guess, as a young, young worker. And I, it was a, a, I guess a slap in the face. You're like, Oh my God, this stuff really happened. So um, it was horrifying. And um, I, I wasn't stopping there, so I, I I wasn't taking no for an answer. It was not. It wasn't in me to take no for an answer. So um, I we we kind of conferenced, and my supervisor she, the, they were on the way to pick him up. So I was like, you know, I had I had I didn't promise him, but I said I'm going to try to help you. I never. I was very careful about not promising kids something that I couldn't you know um, uphold, but. I, I really thought we were going to be able to help him. So that's why it's called Jamar's Promise, because I really, you know, I when I, I said to him that I'm, you know, I'm going to try everything to help you and to have let him down or the system let him down is so hard. But um, anyway, um, the we call my supervisor calls mom and um, stepdad and they were on the way to pick him up and they curse her out it's a whole big thing um so we kind of get uh, um the mom and stepdad to say we'll leave them there for the night and we call what uh, the next um action was to call in our hotline to tell our hot like uh, open up another investigation basically um so we have another a set of eyes going out and seeing this child so if we couldn't get a removal request done from, you know, my own eyes, somebody else's second secondary opinion uh, will certainly, he'll, he's going to tell them the same thing. And certainly that will, um, they'll be, they'll be able to remove him. When so, I call- so, so you're calling your own organization yes, because, yes. because you're powerless at this point. Absolutely. Yep. And it, and since anyone can call CPS, yep. um, a new uh, file or, you know, a, a new worker will be assigned essentially. Yep. And then maybe that'll go up the chain of command and a different right. decision will, will be made. Absolutely. That was my thought process that, and, and actually 
it's recorded. So our hotlines are always recorded. So I, I was able to hear my recording and I was so frantic and I said, just give me the approval. I'll go out and get them. Just, I just, that's all I need is the approval um, to remove him. So it's on there just saying that's all we needed is the approval. And um, this was like our last ditch attempt to help this child. So um, we got the, um, we called it in and there was an investigator that went out, but it, she didn't go out to the next day. So there were several, several things that in this, the system unfortunately failed them, but um, she didn't go out to the next day. Um, she saw the parents in the office and not in the home. There was just some things that were discrepancies. Um, she did see him and in her report, um, he tells her how that he's scared of him and um, this and that, but then she doesn't, she documents it in her report, but then in her safety assessment, doesn't document in our safety assessment, which is a tool that we use um, in, that would instantly, if she put it in our safety assessment, that would instantly bring up a uh, some kind of plan, some kind of action. So um, she didn't document it in her safety assessment, so it, no action was required. So he was deemed safe, safe, mm-hmm. even though he record or um, told her that he was scared, knowing the history. Um, and even and, though they had you as a trained assessor of such matters and your opinion, they still thought he was safe? Yes. And unfortunately, I know, it, and it plays a big role, it, it was another Spanish worker. Um, and there was the Spanish worker that was out with me. Um, she she unfortunately can attest to, she, she is really, uh, she doesn't go into, she doesn't, do the stereotypes or the, um, she, she goes out with a blind eye, but unfortunately that's not how, it, I mean, I'm sure there's, that happens in everywhere, but, um, in our office particular, in this case, um, it was because he was basically, they were Spanish and Spanish speaking that they were going to kind of handle it all amongst themselves. Wow. So, yes. Yes. Um, and, it was just unfortunate because so he um, and just how it worked out that every single and most of our it was 90 percent of our office was at that time Latino. But um, unfortunately, every other person other than me and my supervisor were Latino. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not racist that my husband's Spanish. It's my kids are Spanish. That's just the way that it worked out in in my office in this case. Um, I documented a case before this that it happened in kind of a similar situation. There was three kids, um, and you can, you know, everybody can read about that, but it's another documented case, but I was able to remove them kids, um, by going through a different chain of command. But, um, so this, well, just uh, to, just to chime in the, the, the historical racism at play is, Mm -hmm white people in America have marginalized and and harmed Latino, Latina families. And sometimes from a government position, and that history is known to a lot of these families and probably is ongoing. Uh, You know, INS workers, if they're white, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a, 
you know, it, I've, I've never heard of this before, but it makes sense. Uh, and, uh, and it's your observation that there's a, uh, perhaps a bias against white CPS workers coming into the home and providing their opinions on their lives. Yes. Unfortunately, and this is, again, this was my, what happened with me, my situation, my story. Um, but unfortunately, in talking with people and um, even, again, workers that are Hispanic, they feel they they feel the same way. Um, they know that it's a it's a very cultural. Um, and again, this is my office. This was the Camden office. So um, I can't speak to any other office, but this was the dealings with um, the Camden office and that's how they work. That's how they operate it. And unfortunately um, it operated in such that this child, not only did he go home, but um, he, he was home for six months and um, was tortured by this man. I mean, tortured. And I, I think he did it while he did um, when he was, he tortured and then um, he was beaten to death well, he was beaten um, and left to die in his own blood for 24 hours. That's basically how he died um, with no help from mom. Mom came home from work and um, I'm sure there was bruising and all of if he was um, beaten so badly. I didn't see him, but um, I'm sure he, she had she had saw bruises. Um, he she said to the prosecutor's office that he threw up blood several times and she didn't take them to the hospital. She gave them, I think, Motrin or Tylenol and sent them to bed. So essentially he um, drowned in his own fluid. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what exactly they ruled it, but yeah, that's how he died. Um, just a painful, painful death. And um, for six months he was, he lived in that environment and um, with nobody to even, even if he spoke out, he really, nobody he really thought nobody cared because nobody even the people that were supposed to help him his mom and the system they failed him yeah so. the 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 feelings that you must have had when you found out how did you find out that he had I, passed away i it was 6 months um again i fought to keep the case open i um they the higher ups wanted it closed, um, so I refused to sign um, the closing summary. Um, all of this stuff. So I fought to try to try to go see him again. They said no. Um, get the case closed. So um, and so I, I didn't get to see him again. So that was the the bottom line. And when I got the call, I was out. Um, I had surgery on my carpal tunnel, so I was out, and I remember my supervisor calling me on my house phone at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I wasn't even at work, and I knew something was wrong, and I answered the phone, and she said, all she said was she got him, or he got he got him, and I was like, oh my, I, I knew, I it gave, it took me a second, but I knew who she was talking, who she was referring to, and this was six months after it had happened. Uh, we were, you know, we had the case. So um, it was that bad. It was that. And the feelings of, it was just horrifying. It was like, I let this child, I know, and, you know, I, I've talked about it several times and it's the system and I understand that. But unfortunately, at nine years old, you don't understand that system. You just understand that someone's supposed to help you and they don't. So was the last time you talked to him that day? Yes. 
Yes. And unfortunately, um, after that, I was put on trial for misconduct and um, I lost my job. Um, You know, that's just like the aftermath of of this all. Um, But dealing, going through the system of basically scapegoated by the system um, and not misconduct, misconduct for what? Yes. What, what, yes. what? What conduct? Well, unfortunately, they—I mean—they could never tell me, and they could when they—they they, when they filed paperwork when this all happened, they filed paperwork, and I was out. They sent it to my home. Nobody called. Nobody talked to me. Nobody, nothing. Asked me questions, and they sent paperwork home and said, "I'm gonna, um, I'm being um, put on suspension pending termination for." participating on the words it says in the uh, egregious neglect of duty um, for conferencing a case closure. And that was the wording that it was used, that was used. And um, conferencing a a case closure. Yes. Yes. Like like a conference call or conference discussion or what's a conferencing mean? I I guess that that's what the wording they used. um, Egregious neglect of duty. And there was other charges like, cause you're a civil servant servant. That um, there's other charges like um, civil charges that I don't remember offhand, but um, but egregious neglect of duty just stuck out to me because it was like, oh my god, what a wow! And nobody um, could ever tell me where I neglected, you know, to do anything. Um, nobody could tell me any of that. So, so what? What's your suspicion as to the real reason you were fired? I I don't know. So I I mean really quickly, but I went through the process. It took two and a half years. Um, I was the first DIFAS worker to be exonerated um, from any charges uh, against DIFAS against a worker for a child death. So um, basically, I, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they wanted me to take a deal and just shove everything under the rug and not, not let this get out. And I wouldn't do that. I wanted this story to like, I, I, I didn't know it would go this far, but I just wanted people to know, like, what is going on? This is not right. Um, so I didn't take a deal. I didn't take a 20-day suspension, and um, I opted to go to court, and I don't think they liked that very much. Um, and when I went to court, they, I mean, it's all in the book, but there was a lot of tactics that they used, and you would, I mean, the corruption is despicable it's horrible they pulled my case apart they had they took my witnesses the one worker that was out with me and tried to coerce them the our state attorney was there trying to coerce their testimony and um so they were trying to blame you for jamar's yes 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 how in the world i mean could that this is it's eight yeah it's eight years later and i still don't know there's a recording of the conversation of you desperately asking them to do something and then there's a paper trail that clearly demonstrated they didn't do anything yep and that's that's why i had to speak out because this had i'm sure this has happened to so i'm not the only one that that's happened to i'm not the only one that you know but i'm i think as far as i know i'm the only one that said i'm not i'm not sitting down and taking the suspension. I'm not going to let this sweep it under the rug. They paid off mom. Mom got almost a half a million dollars to not speak out. Um, Even though she was, you know, she had some, you know, aspects of her, it was her, some part of her fault. And she's supposed to be the protector of him. Um, She got paid off and there's, 
so many, so much stuff that goes along with this. But um, I, I couldn't sit down and say, I can't not do anything. I can't. Um, I just couldn't. There was just no way that I was going to go into DIFUS and make a change and then give a 20-day suspension and be have all this shoved under the rug and have it happen again. It just wasn't happening. So um, I did get exonerated. I got a um, – I was supposed to be put back to work right away. This was about two years ago, two and a half years ago. Um, I was supposed to be put back – no, this was more like four years ago. I was supposed to be put back right away. They waited and waited for six months. Um, they finally did put me back to work for a very little bit. Um, and then in the meantime, um, I just, I I couldn't do it anymore. So, I, I mean, they, pretty, they, I put it, I had a um, lawsuit against them for wrongful termination and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I took a settlement and was like, I mean, they were just dragging me through the rug every everything so at that point i just couldn't well you're talking about the state and they have a lot of lawyers and time to to yes. uh, drag this thing out so i would yes. imagine settling is is and moving on with your life is uh, probably preferred it was uh, it was not my it wasn't preferred it was uh, unfortunately something that i thought very very long and hard for for very 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 long um, and fought for fought that for a couple of years because that's what they tried. To, I knew that's the avenue that they were going, but um, I I ultimately I had to do it for my own family and for my own sanity, um, and that's where I finally was like, okay, and and to you know move on with my life. But I knew that it wasn't over and it wasn't the end, and I knew that I had to get this story out. Yeah, that's there's more. To, I mean, there's more cases like Jamar um, just in, in dealing with my own circle. People are telling me their stories and I can't believe it. And if enough people get, uh, you know, the courage to come out and say, you know, this, that we can there. The system is beatable, even though it's this big entity and they have so many people in their pockets. It is that we can if we all stick together, we all come out with our, you know, the stories, then. That's the, that's what we need for change. Yeah, the 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 story that I am hearing um, is uh, another story in which CPS, uh, you know, they I know I'm close with a lot of CPS workers, and I know that they do a lot of good works, you know, yes. and, and and you did a lot of good work, mm-hmm. and your supervisor and your supervisor's supervisor probably yep. did a lot of good Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yep. But there are mistakes that are made. And, and my, my opinion about it is that in my profession as a therapist, particularly with the population I see now, because I'm in private practice and I see mostly what we call high-functioning you know, people, right. Right. the things almost never happen with my clients. The yeah. Suicide isn't very common at all. Obviously, homicide is even less common, um, if non-existent. Uh, substance abuse, violence, you know, I, I don't, so for me, if I make a mistake in my practice, if I'm biased or overworked or not thinking straight, the consequences to my failure is that I just won't be on as a therapist in that session. And then the next session I'll make up for it. (laughs) Um, 
and the client might leave that session going like, ah, he seemed a little distracted, but you know, whatever. Right. Um, it, when you're CPS and you make a mistake, you, you, you're ma- every day you're making these kinds of calls. Is this a yep. situation? You know, we only have so much funds. We only have so much energy. We only have so many uh, foster homes. We only have so much. You know, if 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 we react to every little thing that happens, the the system will shut us down or I'll get fired or I'll be over budget or everyone will hate me. You know, there's a, there's a reason why supervisors of supervisors sometimes say, no, I'm going to override a decision of a, of a CPS worker and say, let's not take action here because I see these cases every day and this is, this doesn't rise to that level. It's hard to understand how this one wouldn't have risen to level, but it, there's reasons why that happens, and so, so there was a mistake. And the problem is that instead of just saying I'm sorry, yeah, and I'm, you know, yeah, maybe I am biased toward my own culture. Uh, maybe I should look at that. Yes. Uh, I, you know, uh, Kristen, um, you were right, and we were wrong. I was wrong, and I'm gonna think about this and I'm going to forever, I'm never going to forget this. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this with other CPS supervisors of supervisors so we can try to not have this happen again. Yep. There's nothing wrong with saying those things because we're all humans and we make mistakes and, and the stakes involved are so high. I think we all get that. The problem. So the pro the mistakes are going to happen. The problem is when these organizations like police departments and governments and government departments utilize their power as the government to essentially cover up their own mistakes and then uh, and then try to blame it on someone who's not only innocent but like the opposite of 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 to blame meaning that they were the one person who actually uh, you should have been listening to from the beginning when they do that, that's when I have a problem with these yeah. people because that is immoral. It's um, it's what everything is wrong in every government around the world. Uh, if everyone would stop, you know, just just say you're sorry. We're all trying. You know, yeah. your supervisor supervisor probably cares as much about human beings and children as you do. You know, yep. and yes. you know, a mistake was made, and just say you're sorry. You know, and and the system should allow for uh, mistakes to be made, you know, and to learn from those mistakes. Mistakes. Right. People make mistakes all the time. And yes, absolutely. You try to reduce them, but you can't eliminate them. You know? Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah. Wow. I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew where this story was headed, but I didn't know it would end with you having been dragged through the legal system uh, in such a bizarre turn of of the story that they would blame you yeah. and try to hang you out to dry i mean they were asking for trouble uh I that's, mean, the, that's the crazy part yeah i i mean that they were they were asking for trouble not listen to their own worker but then turn it around but they have all the funding and all to do so and we're also under and i didn't mention this we're also um we're under uh federal investigate or federal observation um, for the Jackson case, which I'm sure you probably heard about years and years ago. I think it was um, 1999 um, when kids that were in a foster home were eating out of the trash and stuff. So we're under federal monitoring 
for that, for a lawsuit for that. Um, so we have all these um, uh, bullet points to hit, and one of them is getting our caseloads down. And they're so quick now to close a case to get our numbers down to hit this mark that we need to get our federal monitor out of our the the our system, New Jersey system, that they're very quick on to to close these cases. So, um, and that does play a role in in this too. Oh yeah, um, I remember. Uh, essentially, I don't blame CPS uh, for any of this. Whenever I hear stories in the media, they're like, another CPS worker completely drops the ball and another child, you know, the system is broken. And what I say is there's there's two problems that actually, in my, and I'd like to hear your opinion about this because mm-hmm. you, you know more about this than I do, but in my opinion, there are two reasons why we see these problems. One is, is that society... Hate CPS. They 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 just think CPS is a bunch of jerks who are out to take kill children away from homes and and they're evil and you know uh, I think it's kind of sexist too because like they're usually women and yep. how, how dare these women take away other people's children or something. There's this weird yep. cultural yep. thing. It is. It's absolutely you pegged it. It's, yeah, that's very true. And, and so whenever there's a mistake, there's this there's this kind of um, I don't know, hatred or something that comes out from the public that I, I just, I'm like, do you understand these people are better people than you? <laughs> they, <laughs> they are working on a daily basis. They're, they're working after hours because they care, you know, and they, they're, yes. and, and they're not even getting paid yes. very well. And so like lay off, you know, yes. um, they got, you know, they got educated and they decided to not get paid very much, you know, and so you should be, you know, so there's that. And then the other thing is um, legislatures, you know, state governments are often uh, pressured by their people, but they're often just stupid. They don't know what CPS is. They don't understand how departments work. And they pass laws based on like limited information or pass regulations based on limited information that basically forces CPS to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. Yes. Or they limit funds or they, they like, they'll, I remember there was this huge movement. It's probably still happening in terms of outcomes based, you know, you needed to have actual numbers to prove that you're, allocation of funds from the government was actually doing something and you know there's some wisdom to that for sure but but that shouldn't be the only thing that you you know you you should believe that everyone in cps for the most part is is working hard and just sort of let them do their job don't interfere and don't you know don't get in the way so um yeah um The, the other thing that uh, I, I kind of let me you know tell me what you think about this uh, mm-hmm. is I wish that these organizations you know the p- police departments uh, you know Department of Social Services Child Protective Services they had protocols that outside agencies were involved in cases like this you know and and neutral parties so to speak you know oh. um, or and an understanding that mistakes are that they happen and that when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of kids who are in uh, abuse, you know, varying degrees of abusive homes, mm-hmm. uh, you have to draw the line somewhere and try to predict the future in a lot of these families. 
and sometimes you're going to, you know, you're not going to get it right. Right. And, and, and as long as it's under a certain threshold in terms of those mistakes, then, you know, that, that's, that's just what's going to happen. Um, but anyway, I guess what I'm asking is what kind of solution do you see for CPS in terms of their organizational structure to protect from not only having a person like Jamar go back into a home that's abusive, but also to protect a worker like you? Because honestly, the, one of the lessons learned here is if you're a CPS worker, keep your mouth shut, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, that's unfortunately, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So what, what solutions on the organizational level do you think? Ooh, there is so many that my mind is turning. <laughs> um, I mean, there's just so much that I've seen and heard that we haven't even talked about, but um, I, I definitely think third parties um, that are also having eyes that if we, uh, we, I'm saying um, child protective services, um, aren't there, then we have, we're able to have other eyes and that are communicating with us at all times. Um, we were, I mean, I'm not there anymore and I'm saying we, cause I'm, I still associate myself there, but, um, we, I mean, I have blocked, I was blocked all the time from getting information on mutual clients just from social services or, um, from a drug treatment. And I mean, I, you can understand that drug treatment, but we, you know, you're always blocked somewhere where if you work together, it would definitely, I mean, the system is always going to be flawed, unfortunately, but it would be, it would run a lot better that with a little bit of oil together, then there's no oil and there's no buffer. And, um, you know, as far, I mean, I think that's a starting point. That's not, you know, going to solve the problem, but definitely having, um, third parties in there and being, um, everybody communicating, um, on some type of level at all times. And then as far as workers, um, I think that's a big part of this. Um, don't, don't stay quiet. I, even though we joked about that, but don't because um, you can prevent. And I don't know how many time, how many kids that I've prevented from this from. So because I've never stayed quiet on anything, <laughs> um, and that that might have been to my demise, unfortunately. But I would never take that back. And um, you know, like I said, there was a case originally with three children in it that were it was probably just as bad. And I fought and fought to get them out and was able to go on through a different course of action. But, um, and I know that after 10 years, um, that they're all adopted and, and doing well. Um, and, um, you know, you have to speak up. You, unfortunately, you're going to face adversity. That's, that's the nature of this job. You're going to face adversity. Um, and this, don't, don't be afraid to speak up. And we're the front lines. We are the front lines. They have to, um, supervisors, casework supervisors, um, office men, We they have to communicate with us because we're the ones out seeing these kids. We see their faces. They, you know, supervisors are so far from the field that they don't remember, you know, what it's like. And, and supervisors, supervisors, the same thing. Some of them have never been in the field. Um, they have to trust our evaluations of it. And again, with a grain of salt, because they, you know, may have heard more, but they have to trust our evaluations of the case and um, really um, think about what, I mean, these are kids' lives. These are, you know, whatever decision that we make, if we're removing from one foster home to another, it still is a big impact on these kids. Um, we're, you know, that, that disruption 
is it's a big impact. So every decision that we make, it is a big impact. So we always have to be thinking. We can never – our job is just that. We're always thinking. We're always trying to prevent something. We're always trying to, um, uh, you know, give this child, that child, some kind of permanency plan. That's just our job. So we can never stop that. Yeah, it, it sounds like your cat is – equally angry as we are about this right now it's okay my 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 cats um often show up on the podcast so it's not something uh, something yeah um yeah well uh the 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 the, i i there's one detail that i i i i just feel compelled to say before um saying a story that i can say that relates to this is that i'm guessing the supervisor of the supervisor you know they're they're busy. They're they're seeing a lot of different. They're making a lot of calls. They're making a lot of decisions, and uh, it sounds like cultural bias might have been at play. Um, maybe even like they didn't trust your opinion or something for whatever prejudicial reason. Um, but also this Vince guy, when you look at the file, looks like a a golden child. <laughs> I mean he was. He was highly compliant, and yes. when you match that up against, you know, this recent account from a case, you know, from one of the workers that seems to be afraid, you know, I, I could see them uh, being very influenced by a very tricky fellow, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, so it wasn't like the supervisor or supervisor was just like uh, completely without any kind of data to to influence her in that direction. So I just want to say that, but the, the, the last bit um, that I want to say uh, that relates to, to your story is when I first started out as a therapist, I've, I've told this story in the podcast before I had a teenage girl who was in therapy with me because of behavioral problems. And then one session she revealed to me that she was being sexually abused by someone in her family who she was living with. Mm-hmm. And I, she, she said, you know, she said something like, is it okay if I tell you something? And I was just like, yes, I'm your therapist, you know? Right. And in my head, I'm thinking, and then she tells me the story. And, and in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, she told me how brave Yeah. I, I'm going to, this is one of those cases where I'm going to call CPS and we're going to, we're going to solve this problem and we're going to protect this child. And I even told her that I, I told her like, you're so brave. Yep. Um, let's let's call CPS right now. And she's like, CPS? I don't want to call CPS. I was like, no, 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 CPS, they're good guys. You know, they want to help. You know, they're, they're here to help specifically people in your position. And so, and they're, they're not going to rush in and like cart you off to jail or even, you know, your family member to jail. They're, they're going to investigate and they're going to do uh, what they, uh, what needs to be done in terms of to protect you from this ever happening again. And that was my promise to her, right? Yep. Oh, I got the chills, yes. So we call CPS, and we're making the report, and this, the worker is listening. And then, long story short, nothing happened, and she just went back to the home. And she, she comes and she comes to me in later sessions, and she's like, you know, what's the deal? You said you were going to do something. And I said, I thought, I thought something was going to happen, you know, yeah. and, she, and, she, and she never came back to therapy. And I oh. never, I never knew what happened to her, and I completely failed her. You know, I, I thought uh, that I was gonna help her, and I wanted to help her, and I did my job, and 
I made that promise and I essentially broke that promise. And that, that happened 20 years ago or longer. And I still remember what she looks like. I still remember where we were in the office when I was talking with her. And it's just, it's a terrible situation. And it's, and it's so, it makes me feel so guilty, you know, because yes. um, yes. I represent the system. Although I know I didn't have any power, so to speak, but I feel like, you know, I'm a representative of this system and I'm, I'm responsible somehow, you know, Absolutely. for, I get it. Yes. You know, so yes. Uh, I totally get it. Now that situation is, you know, far below the severity of what you went through. And I, and then I wasn't later blamed for anything. So, so there's that whole component, but how did you, how do you feel now? How, how are your, how are your feelings now? You've written the book, you've thought about it a lot. How, how are you feeling about it? Um, I'm, I mean, it's been a process. I'm still in therapy. Um, it's, you know, it's very traumatizing. Um, I, I still remember the day and time and everything like it's yesterday, um, so I'm still working through them emotions and in the process, my mom just passed away. So it has opened up that door again of kind of the loss and, um, and re, you know, the book has opened up the door again. So it's kind of going through the motions of the loss and, um, feeling that even though, you know, I wasn't the one failed in the system that it doesn't it, like your take on it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, you don't, a child doesn't see that. Um, the child only sees you're there to help and you didn't help. And, it, you know, subsequently I, she, you know, he was abused for six months and left there um, in this horrible situation until he died. So, um, and I just think about that all the time about his um, last six months of his life were just probably horrible, just horrible. And um, I was supposed to help him and, whether whatever the situation may be, an eight-year-old doesn't under, or a nine-year-old doesn't understand that he just under, you know, stood. I was there to help him, and I didn't. So that failure, even though it's you know not, it's still a failure. You know, in some, I feel like I failed him in some type of way. So, so it's kind of working through that, which is hard. And then on top of it, being blamed, um, which I know has a probably a role in it. You know, because for two and a half years, I was told that was my fault and that. So I'm sure that has a role in it. Well, Kristen, I don't say this uh, lightly that in a lot of ways you're a hero in this story. Uh, There's uh, not a lot of opportunities for heroism in our, in our, you know, contemporary lives with cell phones and tweeting and um, all the modern conveniences of life. But you were, you literally tried to save a child's life and went up against a system that, um, you know, put up a lot of barriers and you, and you kept fighting and, and it, you know, it didn't work in the end because the system has a billion times more power than you do. But, um, and then they blamed you. And then instead of lying down and letting them get what they want, Again, more heroic heroism. You um, fought back and won um, because that's what's just and that's what's right. And you, you know, put yourself through a lot of stress. I mean, 
I can't imagine all the stress that you've been through over the past few years and, and the worry and the, my God, what's going to happen? And, and, uh, I, you know, I don't say that those words lightly. Um, and I, I, that them words mean a lot, but I'm definitely not a hero. Um, there's, I appreciate them words, but I just feel like it was the right thing to do and that's what you should do. So I'm going to cry now. <laughs> Sorry. I held it together this long, but, um, I appreciate them words. I truly do. But that's, you know, you, that's just what you should do. Well, Kristen, your book is available on Amazon, I assume, and it's called yes. Jamar's Promise. Yes, J-A-M-A-R-R apostrophe S, Promise. Um, it's on Amazon, um, Barnes & Nobles, and there's also a Facebook page um, that you can go to. And I'm always on there responding to people and um, just trying to, to make a difference at this point and get the story out and let people know. So, Well, you've informed me and my listeners. Uh, I'm quite moved by your story. So uh, you, you can say that about your work today. You moved one person. <laughs> yeah, that lot. One, one person. That's all. I think one person, one child, one. You know. So I appreciate that. Thank can, you. So much. If my listeners wanted to reach out to you, how could they do that? Like, do you have a? Uh, I I have a personal Facebook, um, so they can. I mean, I'm always on Facebook trying to, um, like, I, I just a, action take. You know, I'm on it yeah. all the time. Um, and um, I have the Jamar's Promise Facebook that I'm on all the time also. So if right. they wanted to reach out to me, um, there's also a petition on change.org um, that will um, try to reinvestigate the, and try to get some of the questions that we were talking about that I don't even know the answers to of why. Um, I mean, I don't even know what they're going to investigate, but try to reopen it, the investigation and see what they can find. Um, and that's also that's. Um, on my Facebook page, Jamar's Facebook page, and the back of the book too. So it's that's really important to get the word out and to try to get um, some answers to why, like why this all happened and where the lapse was, and hopefully um, make them changes. Like we talked about, um, if there's change that needs to happen, there it needs to happen, and and um, you can't, you know, when their mistakes were made, there's something, there's something like this that needs to change. Some some action needs to be taken. So, yeah. and that didn't happen in this case. So, well, thanks for being on the on the show, Chris. So, Kristen Morris, uh, Jamar, so Jamar's much. promise. If uh, it sounds like there's a lot of details that we didn't get into that that yes. are in the book, go out go out and buy yes. that book. It's an important book. Yes. Thanks, thanks, Kristen. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us out there, everybody. Please take care of yourself, take care of others, because we all deserve it. 